When it comes to health, um, many of these very ambitious targets uh, are very difficult to envisage using today's technologies alone. We are going to need an HIV vaccine, a TB vaccine, an effective malaria vaccine, for example. We're going to need uh, new antimicrobial drugs. We're going to need new, you know, rapid diagnostic tests for a whole variety of infections. That was Gavin Yemi, Director for the Center for Policy Impact and Global Health at Duke University in the US. And I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Gavin has long looked at the Sustainable Development Goals, the sets of targets that range from eliminating the worst poverty around the world to providing universal health care. They cover trade and infrastructure and political governance, and their aims are to improve the lives of everyone, literally leaving no one behind. That's an explicit aim of these. Now, in a new analysis, Gavin and his colleagues, John MacArthur and Krista Rasmussen, from the Global Economy and Development Programme at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., they've set out to analyse the potential for lives saved by the goals set in the SDGs. And the article, How Many Lives Are at Stake? Assessing 2030 Sustainable Development Goal Trajectories for Maternal and Child Health, is live now on bmj.com. In this conversation, I talked to Gavin and John about the numbers, which countries have to accelerate their development to meet these goals, and we also address some of the criticisms of the SDGs, that they're too wide-ranging, that they lack a political dimension, and ultimately that they are unrealistic. John, thank you very much for uh, taking some time to talk to me this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, and Gavin, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks very much. Delighted to have the opportunity. Um, these are very lofty goals that, you know, aim to improve global health in a in a very fulsome way. They are huge and interconnected and ambitious. Um, and you've tried to estimate how many lives are at risk if we don't meet those goals. Um, why is that? Why do you think it's important to actually put some, some numbers on this? Should I go first? <laughs> I'm yeah. sure we each have our own perspectives. Uh, I think the bottom line here is these aren't just about uh, woolly objectives. These are about human beings and lives at stake and uh, a considerable number of lives at stake. And so there is a face behind each one of these numbers. And our whole point is to try to you know, get some clarity on where are those faces? Where are the people that we need to worry about the most? And amid all of the extraordinary breakthroughs in global health of the past generation, uh, even with the new rates of progress, which are tremendous in so many parts of the world, we need even better rates of progress in many parts of the world in order to get the job done. And Gavin, do you do you share that? Yes, absolutely. And um, if I may add, I think it's easy to be sceptical about lofty grand pronouncements and lofty global goals. And it's easy to be cynical and say, hey, well, these targets come and go. And does anything really matter and happen as a result? 
And I think if you look at the experience of the Millennium Development Goals, you could argue that setting those goals and having targets and the focus that came with the MDGs, particularly in health, around child health, maternal health, um, and the big infections like HIV, TB, and malaria, that process was associated with progress. It led to the launch of a number of new funding initiatives like the Global Fund and Gavi that mobilized substantial amounts of money. Um, it led to a scale up of life-saving health interventions like antiretroviral drugs and bed nets. And we know that it led to an acceleration in mortality reduction. And in fact, in our paper, we, we cite evidence to suggest that at least 10 million and as many as 19 million additional children and mothers' lives have been saved by the action that happened around the MDGs compared to pre-MDG trajectories. So the stakes are high um, and we want to get it right. Uh Absolutely. And you mentioned the um, Millennium Development Goals there, which these are the sort of the next step. Um, but these are these are much more broad and they are so much more kind of intersectoral. And I just wonder, you know, from your perspective, when you're going through and trying to work out um, things like, you know, how you could increase um the rate of change for maternal or child mortality, as as we'll get into later, you know, because they're so, the interplay between them is so complex. Uh, I just wonder, you know, looking at those those specific things, um, must be really difficult and and hard to measure as well. Well, I'll give a first crack at this. I would say that we have to separate two buckets of issues here. First of all, there's the health targets, which are quite specific, uh, quite precise. We have the target for child mortality, for under five child mortality, for example, to get below 25 per thousand live births uh, by 2030 in every country. We have a neonatal mortality, first 28 days of life, to get uh, below 12 per thousand live births by the same year. There's a maternal mortality target, which is uh, global to get the maternal mortality ratio down to 70 per 100,000 live births uh, by 2030. So these are actually very specific. And the whole point of these goals is to say, you know, what are the trajectories as of today? Uh, where do the curves need to bend in order to reach those targets? And then how do we think about specificity and scale to achieve them? And so there are uh, particular reasons why people die, why children die, why mothers die and so forth. And how can we look at the evidence around why people are dying and then how can we think through the interventions to tackle them? That will not only come in the health sector, that'll come in other sectors, uh, clean water, for example, nutrition and so forth are all essential. But that is uh, exactly the point of this, to think through what's the outcome that we care about most uh, children surviving and having the opportunity to live is a pretty universal value, but we have to translate that value into specific measurable outcomes and we need to sustain the focus on those outcomes for, in this case, 15 years. If we look at the other goals, just this whole separate bucket of uh, issues of uh, tackling poverty based on each country's domestic standard of poverty, tackling inequality and so forth, uh, 
tackling climate change, protecting the ocean, some of these other objectives that are in the Sustainable Development Goals, yes, those are often interconnected and they're often very important pieces of the puzzle, but each of them needs their own kind of specific measurable set of outcomes as well. And so I think that the successor nature of the Sustainable Development Goals is very important and that it's in a certain sense, taking on the second half of the extreme poverty agenda, the Millennium Goals set forth. But it's also saying there's so much more than just that second half of extreme poverty. There's all these other interconnected issues that the world is articulating a need to address. And we need to be very specific in measuring those outcomes and tackling them at scale. Thank you. Um now, you've chosen in this analysis um, two of the, the health-related goals, maternal and um, child mortality. Why was it you decided to focus specifically on those? Well, I think in many ways you could argue that uh, they are, to excuse the pun, the mother of all of the Sustainable Development Goals. And in fact, you know, uh, Larry Summers, who chaired the last Commission on Investing in Health, um, uh, a process in which a group of us tried to set out an investment framework for the SDGs era. He calls um, uh, interventions and investments in uh, the health sector, the kind of the mother of all development sectors. Now, it is not uh, a competition between sectors. And as John alluded to, we have to be working um, between, you know, between sectors intersectorally. There's a lot we can do to improve health outside the health sector. But you could argue that um, the health and well-being of mothers and newborns and children is the kind of the fundamental um, development goal that you want to get right, perhaps above all else. Yeah, and I would just chime in on this to say, I, you know, I am an economist, full disclosure, and so. I uh, approach this from a, I think Gavin and I find we approach these things from very complementary angles. And I should mention a third co-author in this piece, uh, Krista Rasmussen, who did a lot of the rigorous data analysis with us. I think the, in my experience working on issues around these goals, uh, I found that everyone has their own sense of what's the most important issue that needs to be solved. So if you go to an environment conference, uh, people very commonly find that, uh, you know, climate change is the most existential threat facing our planet. Uh, if you go to uh, another type of conference, a lot of people very legitimately feel that gender equality is the most uh, existential uh, need. There's other people who think that, you know, avoiding conflict or terrorism or corruption is the most existential. Uh, the first among equals of the uh, 17 goals is the end of extreme poverty by 2030. And I think part of my view of this is it's not about put, pitting goals against each other. One person's hunger is no more or less important than another person's domestic violence or another person's uh, you know, starvation or another person losing their child or their mother. These are all important. And at the same time, I haven't been to any part of the world where people don't think that amidst all the debates on what matters, that it's a bottom line measure whether your child gets to survive. That is a measure of society's success. At the same time, on top of that, our world is organized uh, by disciplines. And uh, university departments are still, for better or worse, uh, 
uh, organized around particular disciplines. And one of the things we've seen is that in the Millennium Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals, people tend to talk within their discipline. So unfortunately, uh, not enough readers of the uh, American Economic Review also read the BMJ and, uh, and maybe vice versa. And one of the things these goals can do is literally and figuratively put everyone on the same page. So they're seeing how they have to track these issues together, both because they all matter, but also because they are so often interconnected. So while I agree with Gavin that, you know, these goals are absolutely crucial and these two are, you know, again, whether you get to even live is a pretty fundamental measure of uh, a successful sustainable development policy. Uh, all of these issues are very uh, important. And I think we need to avoid the knee-jerk test of what's more important than another. We need to understand that these are all, these sustainable development goals, extremely important and we need to be tackling them uh, in conjunction across the planes of uh, our societies. So um, let's now move on to the, the the analysis that you've done and the numbers that you've looked at. Um, probably too complex to go into exactly how you did that. I would say people go and have a look online to, to kind of get that detail. Um, but I just want to, you've got some key messages in your uh in your article, and I just want to sort of pick through them one by one. So the first one, um, you say that, given your analysis, on current trajectories, 42 countries are on track not to achieve um, either of the the goals. So, so they're not going to re- achieve maternal mortality reduction or under five childhood mortality reduction. Um, and another 37 will miss one of those. So you know, the the picture there doesn't look particularly rosy, does it? Well, again, it's all in how one frames it. So just to be very specific, there are 181 countries with uh, data for both indicators. 105 are on track for both. So majority are on track for both. That's a good story. That's a cup at least half full. But then there are 42 that are off for both, as you said, And then there's a a few dozen that are off track for one of the two. And so, again, going back to what's the point of the goal, the point of the goal or these goals is not to accept the trajectory as it is, but to understand it and see where it needs to change and then to think through how to achieve that change. So we're really trying, I think, in this study to uh, clarify where things need to change, and then uh, maybe provide uh, some some early pointers based on the uh, data that exists on how it might need to change. One of the great lessons of the Millennium Development Goal era is that, and I, you know, full disclosure, I was active in a lot of those policy debates at the UN in the early 2000s, where I went to all these meetings where people would say, oh, well, you're never going to get uh, an acceleration of progress in these countries that are dealing with HIV AIDS, because at the time there wasn't even a treatment program available. It was prior to the Global Fund launch, prior to PEPFAR, prior to all these things. And then uh, as the scale up of these real delivery programs became normal, uh, we saw these dramatic accelerations in progress, and then we saw a new set of normals. <laughs> And so I think underlying our numbers here is a, a deep set of questions around, we are where we are under a new definition of business as usual, 
today in 2018, where do we need to redefine business as usual to get new practice, new action, uh, to make sure these goals can be achieved by 2030? So, I mean, we've been talking about countries here, and obviously not all countries are equal in size. Um, Some of the populations might be much larger. So in terms of the number of actual people, number of women and children um, that we're talking about here, have you got some, some numbers there? Yeah, and this is my biggest takeaway from this study is uh, exactly how many lives are at stake compared if we compare business as usual versus achieving these two target thresholds. And it works out to being uh, about 11.8 million people, so nearly 12 million people. Uh, and then interestingly, those numbers are quite concentrated. So more than half of those people, uh, mothers and children, are in uh, just three countries, Nigeria, Pakistan, and Democratic Republic of Congo. And there's lots of ways to slice and dice the data, and and we do that a bit. But of the nearly 12 million people, that's predominantly children under five. That's more than 10 million children under five. And we see that these these problems are, again, quite concentrated in a, a small number of countries, and interestingly, Nigeria is the country that's, you know, the one that has the, because it's so big uh, as a population, uh, responsible for more of these lives at stake than any other country. And the rates of progress that Nigeria requires uh, are even faster than the fastest rates of progress uh, in, the, in the past decade. So that shows that there's an ambitious need for a country like Nigeria to achieve these targets. At the same time, Nigeria, uh, under the Millennium Development Goal era, had a significant acceleration compared to its previous rates of progress. So we're now uh, having to confront the question of how much can we push the envelope of how fast a country can make progress. And Gavin, if I can turn to you now, I mean, those three countries, um, Democratic Republic of Congo, Nigeria and Pakistan, they all have very different political situations. Um, the the issues in each country will be very different. So yeah. I mean, how do how do they as individuals or, or collectively as um as a kind of global community, um, can that acceleration that John was talking about actually start to happen? Well, it's a very good point that you make that um, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to you know, acceleration in declines of child and maternal mortality. Each country is at a different starting point. Each country's health system is different. Uh, each country has different challenges you know, by way of geography, um, exposure to natural disasters, levels of conflict, and so on. So um, nobody is going to argue that there's a single simple pathway for every country. Having said that, when we look at uh, progress of other countries, um, particularly those that did very well during the MDGs era uh, in terms of reducing their child mortality, for example, or their maternal mortality, countries like Ethiopia, Rwanda, Turkey, Bangladesh, that gives us certain indicators, certain suggestions of um, approaches that can rapidly reduce mortality. Now, I don't want to get very kind of 
reductionist and say it's all about the health sector. John made the point earlier, a very important point, that accelerating these mortality reductions requires joined up working and joined up thinking. Having said that, I am not embarrassed to say that the data point very strongly to the importance of expanding access to health interventions, medicines, vaccines, diagnostic tests, bed nets, and so on. Research by Dean Jameson and colleagues, for example, has shown that countries that are able to take up health technologies, particularly new ones, and expand them rapidly, they see an additional 2% per year fall in their child mortality compared to countries that don't. So we know that health interventions are important. And we know that there are a set of basic packages of health interventions, a maternal health package, a newborn health package, a reproductive health package, that all countries, regardless of their income status, um, and to some extent, regardless of their health system, although clearly those with stronger health systems will find delivery easier, but there's a set of basic packages that can be delivered um, uh, in most settings that would accelerate um, uh, the decline in mortality for sure. And, you know, countries themselves are going to need to invest in those health interventions. So domestic financing by countries themselves is going to play an important role, particularly as countries grow economically. Um, In terms of that, how likely do you think it is that, that these countries will be able to actually, I don't know, have the political motivation to be able to do some of these things? Um, you know, we've known for a long time about about interventions that would make a big difference, and yet, you know, still these countries lag behind for for a variety of reasons. John, why don't you take a stab at that one, and then I'll uh, I'll give you the easy one. <laughs> I, I think, again, I I would say there's a couple of separate points here. First is our uh, role in this study is to point out as dispassionately as possible where the needs lie. So this is not a prediction exercise. Uh, We're not crystal balling the world. We're just saying if the current trajectories continue, what does the world look like in 2030? And uh, how much does that matter in each place? Uh, There's a second question, which is, well, again, where do things need to change? And if one really focuses on where things need to change, then you have in the, I would argue, in, in the world of health outcomes, you have lots of different uh, factors coming together. One, of course, is political leadership. So we saw some of the greatest gains in child mortality, for example, in the past generation were in Rwanda, uh, which uh, had some of the fastest rates of progress in the world, which in the year 2000, many people might not have predicted. Uh, That was a lot of political leadership, that was a lot of health systems leadership, that was a lot of direct investments, that was a lot of external partnership. But this is a country that came out of a very, very difficult place and made tremendous direct investments and really showed new approaches for uh, building up a health system. We look at other countries where they might have been, you know, maybe less uh, politically dramatic surprises, but the data still showed dramatic gains much faster than was possible due to just the hard going, uh, or pardon me, hard ongoing work of the local health leaders, the ministers of health, the leaders of the antiretroviral programs and so forth, immunization programs, just doing the building. But then we see how priorities evolve too, is the next piece. 
So I remember in the early 2000s where you know, so much of the attention was focused on uh, immunizations and antiretroviral treatment, and you know, it drew so much attention to the need for stronger investments in health systems. And then we saw in 2005, 2008, a lot of the political leadership starting to say, well, everyone's talking about uh, so-called MDG4 on child survival and MDG6 on uh, infectious disease. What about this MDG5 on maternal health that seems to be falling behind? And we saw a tremendous international uh, effort to really strengthen the political attention and international cooperation around even measuring and making health systems-based progress towards maternal health. So these waves can come and build on each other. But then we also have advents of new technology en route. So we have the new waves of uh, vaccines and immunizations. We have the new uh, forms of uh, neonatal care. We have the new lower cost technologies uh, for primary care and even energy systems and microgrids for solar power and coal chains and all these things that are getting better and better at each stage. We can say, ah, it looks like there are many ingredients that need to go together in order to get a next wave of breakthroughs. Where do we need the political leadership? Where might breakthroughs in technology make a big difference? Where do we need to do just the plain old hard work of building out the systems? And where do we need to make uh, corresponding breakthroughs in other sectors that will help reinforce the gains? And vice versa, by the way, because a lot of sectors will benefit from better investments in health. So over the long term, if you want to grow your economy, having a healthier and more productive workforce is a pretty strong contributor. Um. Since the Millennium Development Goals, you know, the sort of the global political landscape's changed. Um, we've we've seen a reduction in funding going towards big institutions like WHO. But then on the other hand, um, there seems to be things like the World Bank embracing universal health coverage. I mean, it's, it's quite a complex picture out there. I just wonder how you personally feel about it. Do you feel optimistic? Look, when we published uh, our analysis back in 2013, the Commission on Investing in Health, just to build on that, the IMF estimated that low and lower middle income countries were on course to add something like $10 trillion a year to their GDP by 2035. And so you could make the case that as long as countries uh, invest a small percentage, something like one to three percent of that growth into their health systems, um, they could see remarkable progress. There is also a lot of innovation going on in the international financing of health. Now, are some of the priorities and some of the concerns shifting? Sure, I think that you're starting to see donors, for example, um, concerned about the rise of antimicrobial resistance, about the threat of pandemics, uh, about climate change, about some of the shared threats that we all face. And so I think there is a transition happening. Okay, so countries that are getting richer are, are better able to support their own health systems from their domestic finance. If that's the case, and if they transition away from um, donor assistance, I think it's it's a natural process and that, that there could be a shift of donor funding towards some of these you know, global transnational challenges. Um, 
The other thing that I would reiterate, we've talked about technology and technological innovation. Um, the many estimates that I've seen now of what's possible um, by 2030 or 2035, depending on which target year you choose, the estimates, the modeling, the scale-up scenarios, they, when it comes to health, um, many of these very ambitious targets uh, are very difficult to envisage using today's technologies alone. We're not going to get there with today's tools. We are going to need tomorrow's tools. And so there has never been a more important time for donor investments, and I think that really it has to be donor investments particularly, um, into you know global health innovation. We are going to need an HIV vaccine, a TB vaccine, an effective malaria vaccine, for example. We're going to need... Um, uh, new antimicrobial drugs. We're going to need new, you know, rapid diagnostic tests for a whole variety of infections. I would just add that this point on uh, the development assistance, the domestic capacity of countries, we're in just a new place compared to a generation ago. So uh, global development assistance for health has uh, roughly tripled uh, in the past generation. It's at a new steady state. So it doesn't seem to be increasing a lot lately, but it's at a new steady state which is much higher than it was before, uh, much, much higher than it was before. So it allows a whole new set of these institutions to take on a new frontier of problems like Gavin was just describing. But the flip side is we have so many uh, formerly uh, low-income countries that are now middle-income countries. Uh, we have so many places that are developing their own domestic resource base and want to stand on their own feet to pay for these things. You know, on that, you're, you're talking about a shift that I don't think I've really, uh, I've appreciated. That shift uh, in those those countries to become sort of middle-income countries and that, that associated sort of uh, less need for, for external funding then also means that, you know, things like, I don't know, civil society's involvement in, in their health system needs to be... Um, strengthened and to make sure that the, the proper goals are, are set and and that everyone uh, you know no one is left behind um in this and i suppose we go back to you know the, the what we were talking about at the beginning here where we we're saying that that lots of this then becomes incredibly interconnected and that's been a criticism of the 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 sdgs is that perhaps they lack that sort of that political dimension slightly i think that there's a lot embedded in what you just said, of course. It's a very thoughtful question. There's so much, uh, so much that needs to be tackled in order to make sure no one is left behind. And that leave no one behind thematic is, uh, I think, the through line of the sustainable development goals. And that applies to every country. So this is a universal agenda that all countries agreed to, to apply to all countries. So whether you're in... Uh, you know, Middle England, or you're in uh, Appalachia in the United States, or if you're an indigenous community in Canada, my home country, or, you know, or if you're in uh, rural India or northern Nigeria, this is about no one left behind. And so that is a pretty expansive vision, which means moving away from averages to really disaggregate our thinking to say, are there ethnic groups, racial groups, geographic groups? Is it by gender? Is it by uh, you know indigenous status? Is it by some other dimension of uh, societal politics that people are getting left behind? 
And there is a really a, a core vision here of a minimum standard for all human beings everywhere within inclusive societies. So that said, if we start to think more broadly about you know, how these different types of progress can interconnect, you know, and you often hear, oh, 17 goals, that's too many goals for a country to take on. They need to prioritize. Well, my first question is always, how many ministers are in your country's cabinet? Uh, and usually it's more than 17, actually. Uh, again, in Canada, there's uh, at least 30 right now. And so the question is, well, can each minister at least have one goal? Well, of course, they already each have more than one to start with. And so a head of state or a prime minister might have only uh, so much political bandwidth to talk about a handful of things where they really want to make big structural changes to a society. But what we're really talking about here is, again, within each ministerial domain or within each professional domain, each uh, community being able to see how its targets will be measured on an outcome basis for 2030 and how they'll be on this big collective scorecard uh, across ministries, across communities. So the, the kind of conceptual vision I have for an SDG uh, conference or summit is a, a 17 room conference center where each specialist community goes out to work on their problem and then comes back to report jointly in plenary on how they're gonna connect those dots together. And, and with a lot of uh, productive coffee breaks on the side. Uh, and so I think this is a different way of thinking uh, about how our uh, policy problem solving needs to work. But the flip side is for each of these 17 issues, which of them uh, would we say shouldn't be addressed over the next 17 years for a world of seven going on eight billion people? Are we going to say that oceans doesn't deserve attention? Or are we going to say that you know, our innovation and infrastructure system doesn't deserve attention, or, or is it jobs that don't deserve attention? These are all things that weren't in the MDGs, but they're things that are crucial to societies and to the planet. So I think this complexity that's embedded in the MDGs in some ways is just revealing of a truth of how our societies already work, because each of these goals is there because some significant set of constituencies told the United Nations General Assembly, this matters and this issue isn't going away. And we see that the health part of this is arguably some of the most structured, the most organized, the most specific, but it's, it's one of many such constituencies and specialist uh, communities that have been thinking through each of their issues on a, on a parallel basis. No, and I suppose, um, I mean, this is a, a partially thoughts <laughs> I might not turn this into a question fine thing but I mean it seems to be like finally we're starting to think about these as not just a complicated system but but a complex system and um, I don't know I, I, I get the sense that some of the um, the criticism of this is because we're not comfortable thinking about complex systems and and the way in which those interactions work or we haven't set up our our kind of institutions and and our measurement to really take account of that i mean i think that's an absolutely brilliant point incredibly well put and let me tell you that um one of the problems i mean i i'm at an academic institution uh, 
um, at Duke University, and we have a, an institute, the Duke Global Health Institute, that is really trying to bring disciplines together. But the challenges that we face, if you go even beyond global health to incorporate the kind of new framing of planetary health and the ecosystems, uh, you know, to include the oceans and fisheries and so on, um, you're going to clearly need highly interdisciplinary kinds of working. But it's, the incentives are not necessarily in place. Um, and Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, gave a keynote, and he showed data on research funding for truly interdisciplinary research. It has been falling steadily year on year. And so we do have a problem with um, uh, you know, lack of incentives for doing the kinds of joined up interdisciplinary work that are gonna be needed. And, and I would add a layer to that, which is you know, having had the privilege to work with people from different communities, agriculture, soil science, health, you know, uh, infrastructure, economics, and so forth over many years, one sees that the there are certain disciplines, and I would say health is at the forefront, where the applied nature of the research, and also, to your credit, of the journals like BMJ that are really able to convene these debates around what is a good policy, what is the evidence, uh, how do we think about everything from the bench science to the policy and institutional design. Uh, that doesn't exist in the same way across disciplines. So we have a few dimensions on which we need to improve our thinking. One is that we need different disciplines, different so-called epistemic communities to be thinking in a similarly broad-ranging way about what's applied research and how does that connect to our basic science and innovation. But the other is how then to connect across disciplines so that these, these grand challenges as they sit in front of us uh, can be addressed with the kind of multiple perspectives that they really require. And I suppose my last question then is, you know, given, uh, Gavin, as you said, the, the money for, for kind of this interdisciplinary working and research is, is going down, the lack of places that actually do it, you know, um, who is it that should be coordinating that, um, pulling together the money, pulling together the thought leadership, pulling together um, the groups to actually make that happen? Um, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, as, as John said, there are clearly, um, you know, there are journals that are showing leadership in this area. There are funders who I think are uh, showing leadership in this area, like the Rockefeller Foundation, for example, um, which has really pushed the, into plan the planetary health agenda um, in particular. Um, you know, um, I'm an eternal optimist. Um, I can't answer your broader question about the entire kind of ecosystem of ecosystem of, of research funding. Um, but there are, you know, there's some signs of um, of leadership from some funders and from some universities. I suppose I wondered if now that, um, as as John was saying, countries are, you know, standing by themselves, and as you say, you know, the role of of um, the people who traditionally funded global health might be towards innovation, that this this should be um, one of the those innovations. Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I would welcome that. I think, you know, there's a mantra that we are moving from an era of donorship to an era of ownership, um, that in the MDGs era, there was a tripling of development assistance for health. It was extraordinary. It's been called the golden decade of global health. Um, those days are over. We seem to have 
certainly aid for health is not falling, but we seem to have stagnant levels now. This appears to be a new normal. But be that as it may, the, you know, the three of the sexiest words right now in global health are universal health coverage, and perhaps the three other sexiest words are domestic resource mobilization. And that's where, you know, that's where the action is, uh, is, is almost certainly going to be. Am I allowed to say sexy on a podcast? I don't know. <laughs> I think we, we could get away with it. Um, but I would just, maybe going back to the research funding bit too, I think part of this is around, uh, it's not just connecting disciplines. We all know of university environments that have struggled for so many years to try to get people from different disciplines to work together more. I think part of it is, you know, depending on the country and the institution and so many variables, if it's just about trying to get people to work together, it, it doesn't really click. Uh, whereas if it's uh, many people are needed to solve a specific problem, many types of people are needed to solve a specific problem and there are resources available uh, for people to connect on solving that problem, that general principle seems to work a lot better. But that means that uh, uh, different governments, for example, might need to think a bit differently about their national uh, research funding entities, uh, whether public or philanthropic. It means that some of the international entities uh, might need to think a bit differently. You know, and there's a, a bit of a, a political challenge here often, which is, is it's easiest to say uh, we focus on issue X and we have people who are great at uh, issue X and we put all the, pe all the things that are good about issue X in the same room and the same funding pipeline and so forth. But what we're talking about, and you can think of climate change, for example, uh, as a, an analog, we need to decarbonize our economies by 90% per unit of GDP by about 2050. This is not a, a single uh, expert or single expertise issue. This is a very complex issue. And just like uh, promoting uh, healthy living standards on a very complex global set of um, sources of burden of disease, we need multiple forms of expertise around these grand challenges that are properly articulated. And we need the funding pipelines, public and private, to be able to connect around them. Uh, and so that, I think, is, uh, is an area where I see a lot of forward movement in the health sector because perhaps it's because politicians can get their head around issues of life and death uh, pretty quickly. Uh, but I think there's, uh, as Gavin has just outlined, a need for much more progress on this. And I would say outside the health sector and health outcomes, there's a lot of need for more progress, too. You've been listening to John MacArthur and Gavin Yamey talk about the SDGs and their analysis, how many lives are at stake, assessing 2030 sustainable development goal trajectories for maternal and child health is now available on bmj.com. We have more on what it will actually take to reach the SDGs on our website, from the need for strong political institutions to the tensions between trade and health. Links are in the podcast text. That's all for this episode. We'll be back soon with more. So subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. We're in most places now. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>